Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for you if as a surveyor you just can't switch off. And you know what? That's okay. You're not alone, my friend. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub with me, Marion Ellis. Now, as surveyors, we all love reading up about a good claim and complaint and finding out what went wrong, why it went wrong, and trying to understand what can sometimes feel like a mystical, magical world of law. In today's podcast, I'm chatting to Duncan Greenwood, a partner at DAC Beechcroft, and we talk about all things complaints and claims. Welcome to the podcast, Duncan. It's great to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Now, Duncan, I can tell you're probably a bit freaked out because... Normally, lawyers have everything worked out with a, an agenda and with a list of questions. And I've asked you to come on here to let's have a chat and let's see where the conversation goes. <laughs> and I can yeah. tell <laughs> that that's not the way you normally do things. You're very organised, but I'm really glad that you're here. For surveyors who, who don't know you or don't know your business, could you just introduce yourself and explain a bit more about, about Beechcroft? Sure, DAC Beechcroft. It's a national stroke global legal practice. It's heavily focused within the insurance, health, real estate sectors. Uh, We have about nine offices in the UK. We have offices in Ireland, in Spain, and a variety in Latin America. Uh, I myself am a professional indemnity lawyer and have been for the last 25 years uh, defending claims against professionals. And as far as the UK practice of DAC Beechcroft is concerned, I lead the professional property practice. And you know a lot about surveyors, do you? What we try to do as a business and have done for the last two decades is create service lines within the business so that as a professional indemnity lawyer, I would not pretend to be an expert in every potential professional discipline that would drop on my desk. I certainly don't go near accountants negligence and my team would tell me that's because I can't count very well but I focused on surveyors and solicitors and property related claims throughout my career and the team that works with me uh, on the surveying side will be doing at least 50% of that so they the idea is that we understand the industry we understand the professionals and we understand how the sort of regulatory and governance piece surrounding that. And how did you get into that because it's quite a niche area isn't it? Fresh indemnity. Well yeah um, and, and the property you know the surveyors work it was just like when I first qualified, my firm, which wasn't called DAC Beechcroft, but interestingly was a legacy business. So I had been with essentially one firm throughout my career, was on uh, the Solicitors Indemnity Funds panel. That no longer exists as a sort of mutual for solicitors. Uh, but I gravitated towards property claims when I was doing that back in the 90s. Uh, and it developed from there. Uh, if I can do property claims and understand them, insofar as solicitors are concerned, the same applies when you've got surveyors and valuers and also insurance brokers who've uh, made mistakes in, uh, in placement of insurance. And so there'll be lots of surveyors listening. I know we have quite a few student surveyors or new career, uh, sort of early career surveyors listening who will have never had a claim. Or there's some surveyors listening who have had claims and have had bad experience in the past and the market you know we've had sort of ups and downs with recessions and and different things 
for that, just to sort of give a, an overview, at what point do you get involved in a in a claim? Because my background, for those who are listening, so I'm a surveyor, but I spent most of my career working with PBQs, post-valuation queries, pre-completion complaints, so your down valuations, but then also the claims of your valuation claims, defect claims, everything post-completion. So once the people have moved in, and typically on the day they move in, something will be broken or not worked. They start decorating three, six, 18 months later and they discover something or they, they start to live and use the property. And people would write in and say, there's a there's a problem. And we would record it on a complaints log and all surveyors need to have a good complaints log and, and keep track of these things. And sometimes when it would be either high value, very sensitive, something that we couldn't have a dialogue with, with a, with a client for me was the one of the key turning points, is we would then get another party involved to help, you know, take it further. Is that always the case or do you do you get involved with anything at any stage or when typically do you do you start to bring in the heavy? There, there's no there's no one answer to that. I mean. Typically, from a traditional perspective, um, it would only be there are some insurers out there, and I'm talking about professional indemnity insurers, that either have third-party arrangements for claims handling, adjusting, or do it themselves. And so some only send out instructions to lawyers when litigation is started. Uh, and by that stage, one tends to find that positions are fairly entrenched already. And whilst you can give advice on the on the commercial and technical merits and strategic input, the ability to actually nip the claim in the bud or find a solution is, is long gone. Others, I do it predominantly out for insurers, but also having been in the industry for that long, I've got close relationships with certain uh, insured clients, so big surveying practices, small surveying practices. That is then different, uh, and you quite often are consulted before something is from the customer's perspective, has gone before they've consulted lawyers themselves. Uh, lawyers can, and I know I am one, can be a barrier to a, a sort of consensus and good sense at times. Certainly from the claimant side, we often find that lawyers give clients fairly bullish advice and merely increase their expectations as to what they can expect as a solution. So it's a varied picture, but in, in terms of risk management generally, and even within our business, we encourage all our people to talk to us if there's an issue before it becomes a problem, let alone a claim. And I think you know, communication within a business when there is a concern expressed is far better than pretending it hasn't been said and trying to hide it under the carpet. So I think early collaboration is often a far better and effective tool than simply putting the shutters up and um, pushing the claimants towards solicitors and litigation totally hear you on that and I think that whole when can you nip it in the bud is really key and even though as a rule once once completion has happened on the purchase of a property it then defers to being a treated as a claim Mm -hmm. I always took the view of it's a complaint until it's a claim yeah in that you know you can resolve things you can talk to people you can admit you're wrong. And I know lawyers will say, never, and insurers never admit that you're wrong, any liability. 
But if you've got a good relationship with your clients, then you can say, yeah, that wasn't how it was supposed to be, or I shouldn't have done that, or this is, now I know, you know some more information. This is what I've discovered. And it's all about having a good relationship. But we don't always do that as surveyors. And particularly, I think, well, well I see sort of two sides. One, some of the, the bigger practices are so efficient in terms of the processes, the way instructions come in, jobs are booked, jobs go out. I really admire, and having worked in it for years, the way that they they do that. But sometimes it can lose the customer experience, the hand-holding, the, mm-hmm. you know, we we talk about them being sausage factories, but they make great mm-hmm. sausages sometimes, but they don't necessarily yeah. do curly sausages. And that's when it can, can sometimes go wrong. Yeah. But then for small firms or people who work for themselves, it can be incredibly stressful because you haven't got the number of people, perhaps access to the legal advice to know what to do. And it can be really easy to get very defensive very quickly and start arguing. And those first couple of interactions you have with a client, I think are absolutely crucial to the tone of how how a complaint or claim will you know, will pan out. Yeah. I mean, I'd go further than that and say the interactions and communications one has with their clients from the very outset, even before any work is done, important in terms of setting the scene and managing expectations around what is being required and how it's delivered and how, how it, it, it sort of, it manages. I mean, obviously you talk about the big firms with heavily process-driven things, systems which which one has to have but i think when you're dealing with with consumers it's really important from the very outset to demonstrate a a level of humanity Mm. um, and communication that is on i was going to say their level but that almost suggests that the professional is above or they're not it's an equal from what i see it's, it's an equal partnership if you like and i think really sometimes a complaint will will actually not be made if if it will be more a, a minor criticism and a shrug of the shoulders if the original process has been set up correctly and humanised, for want of a better description, in terms of the, what, what people are expecting out of it and what the surveyors are doing. And I know that there's always this risk and reward issue around one can't bend over backwards and spend hours and hours for the price, etc. But I, I do think good communication and making sure that the record is made of all that good communication yeah. in terms of the, the material points, just in case, is really good practice. And I think also for surveyors, it's looking at the job as a whole. You know, it's not looking at the the time that you have on site inspecting the building and, and doing mm-hmm. the report. It's looking at the job at the whole. So what you say and do right at the start in you know, setting up your shop fronts of the kind of products and services that you're going to sell, who they're aimed at, what the reports and services type of property it's suitable for, you know, and being really clear on who that is for. And I think a lot of surveyors often think, well, I do surveys and I just do them on certain types of property in a certain postcode. But I think you can break it down further to ideal clients. You know, they might be referred to work for people who are downsizers or first-time buyers or people who absolutely love thatch and period properties you know and breaking it down further means that you then in all of your marketing material all of your conversations that you have you're making things really clear but knowing who you're speaking to and some people want more advice or support in different ways but then from that first instruction 
and, and the booking of the appointment, the relationship doesn't stop. And it's the it's keeping the channels open to say, talk to me, anything you're not sure about, anything you're worried about, let's have a chat. Often things like just speaking to the husband and not the wife can really help, particularly if it's a, a joint instruction. They get the report, having the conversation. There's a lot of emphasis placed on, you know, having a phone call before and after, you know, the inspection and when the report is done. And it's great if people do that, but it's absolutely pointless if it's not going to be a good conversation and an honest conversation Mm -hmm. where the customers feel that they can share their worries with the surveyor. And then you've got an opportunity, even when you've done that report and you've missed something or they've asked for something extra, you've still got an opportunity right until things have completed on the sale to -hmm. put things right, to change things, to add to it. And I've seen in my career, the most embarrassing things, but you can recover from the most embarrassing things. So long as you're, you're upfront about it, you have a good relationship with your client, Mm -hmm. because once it then completes, that's when it gets, it can get tricky. And that's when it goes down the Mm. the more. I mean, mean, sometimes managing an issue well and properly and proactively actually adds to the goodwill, if you like. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you've got a good relationship with people and you've shown willing, you can recover from the most embarrassing cock up Mm -hmm. ever. I've seen that. And I've worked with small independent firms, large firms, and that is that goodwill because ultimately a client has decided to use your service as a surveyor and they want to know that they've made the right choice. It's not about it being the survey being seen as insurance guarantee. They want to know that they've made the right choice. And so at every point as a surveyor, you need to reinforce that in a well done and a thank you for choosing me. You made the right, right decision, you know, and that absolutely helps their ego and can go an, an awful long way. When it comes to a claim and so it lands on, on, on people's desks, what are the first things that you would recommend surveyor to do so they get a you know they get the the letter in or the email or the phone call to say you missed something or this has happened what are some of the first things that you think surveyors would should do that would help them further down the line well if we if we're talking about a claim then obviously notify their insurer straight away uh, so there can be no issues down the line in terms of availability of insurance in terms of the complaint or claim as first articulated then obviously one doesn't rush to make any formal admissions because insurers don't like that. I think ensuring that all the retained documents uh, and files of papers and digital photographs and videos are available and retained, preserved, should I say, and actually opening a dialogue, I think, with the complainant to better understand what the issue is. Sometimes, certainly when I've seen at the very outset of the defect claim, the original communications. Sometimes it's slightly unclear and opaque. So I'd, I, I would say don't jump to the assumption that a that, that formal claim is coming down the line. And why not go out on site and have a conversation? Yeah. Would be my suggestion. Yeah, I, I think you're right. When when I used to deal with, with the complaints and claims, we used to have a triage process that I developed of just going through the information, going through the the, the complaint, claim, email or, or letter that came in to try and really understand and going back to try and clarify. And, and usually a phone call 
will mm-hmm. do that and work wonders. And uh, often a phone call takes the wind out of people's sails because when you put everything down in writing and you get to that point when you put everything uh, down in writing, it can come across as quite aggressive, quite formal. But when you mm-hmm. phone somebody up and say, crikey, just got your letter. Thanks very much for that. Can I, can I just clarify a few points? Can you tell me a bit more? And mm-hmm. mostly you know, if it's done in the right way, most people will give you more information that can help you then get a fuller picture of what the problem is, what the defect is and their expectations and also asking people, what do they want? And most of the time people will say, I want you to fix it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which lots of A's don't, don't get involved with, you know, so that clarification is really important. You mentioned, you know, referring it to your insurers and I guess it dep- depends on the insurer and the policy, but I know a lot of surveyors are never quite sure when they should refer it. Mm-hmm. And as I, I mean, it works differently for larger firms that have complaints departments where yeah. we used to keep a log, you know, and only if it was really, really bad, would we then speak directly to somebody like you or, or to the insurer, mm-hmm. but we would have our own log. But for smaller firms, they're never quite sure when they should, because if you report it well i guess it then goes on your your record doesn't it well unless it's costing the insured money it's it's not necessarily going on the record in, in a potentially adverse influencing premium type of way i mean most most of those will have an insurance broker that arrange their policy speak to them speak to any colleagues in the business both insofar as the underlying issue is concerned and the best way forward I mean, some insurers take the view that if, if it's not a claim, if it's merely a complaint, does it even qualify for being notified and may kick it back? There is a slight inconsistency in that because further down the line, when a claim does land, I, I've often seen insurers say, oh, well, this was not a circumstance in prior year and therefore you should have notified this to your previous insurers. I know that having the same insurer year on year, providing the premium is not extravagantly increasing, is a far safer place to be than shopping around, but that's a different issue. But insurance language differentiates be- between a claim, which is essentially a, a very unequivocal comment that there's an intention to seek redress and compensation. That's what's one thing. All, all professional indemnity policies are claims-made policies, which, which means that when the claim lands, that particular policy is triggered. But because their claims made, these policies also have a built-in mechanism whereby a circumstance is also recognised. The circumstance is usually an intimation of an intention to, to bring a claim in the future without actually articulating it straight out. And so one has the ability to notify an insurer of a circumstance. It may be that the claim doesn't land until 12 months later, but it will be the, the insurer that receives the circumstance notification that picks it up and i mean obviously that's important when you're going through renewal processes as well because quite often the proposal form well always the proposal form will invite confirmation as to whether aside from claims already notified there are any circumstances known within the business yes yeah, so that's important the, to get that right yeah it is and that's the it's really then looking at what is the potential for this to go wrong mm. and usually if it's a high value or we don't know the full details yet because we've not been able to go on site or we've not had engineers reports back or anything. Mm-hmm. And it's important to keep a good record of that, but also then, and, and insurers can really help you. Some of them have, you know, they'll have their own complaints people there who can help you do some of the responses that you might need, but it's keeping a record and making sure it's closed down as well. Yeah. You know, 
I don't think people always realize how long it takes for some of these claims because it can take years and years sometimes to go through, can't it? Are you talking about if, if a case goes to trial? Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or you know, someone notifies you of a claim. Say, for example, it, it's to do with movement. There's things like, well, you might need to have monitoring. You might need to have reports mm. and engineers' reports done. And it can take quite a long time for it to be um, to looked at, reviewed, checked, diagnosis, all of those things. It can take long. And in which case, if you're trying to get insure, renew your insurance every year, and let's face it, it is really hard to get insurance. There's not yeah. that, you know, I think we've done podcasts on that before and there will be more that we will that we will do on it. But, you know, it's it's you've got to keep track of, of where you're at with, with things and, and it can take a long time. Let me ask you about when cases then it's decided that it goes to court, because actually very few in reality go to court or go that far, don't they? Yeah. I mean, the, number, the numbers have dwindled since the Jackson reforms. Um, Tell about... me about the Jackson reforms. Well, that, that was designed, that, that was when the what we used to call, solicitors used to have the High Court, we had a, a white book, which had all the court rules in, uh, in the county court, we had a green book, and along came the civil procedure rules. And they all introduced across the board, really, pre-action protocols. And they're, they're all designed to, we're talking about when a claim has actually been intimated, mm-hmm. to, to prevent people rushing off to the court and issuing claim forms. A, it's expensive to issue a claim form, and B, you will have solicitors involved. Costs, quite often, on the smaller type of claim, can outweigh and become disproportionate. So that that was why they the reforms were brought in, and they do work. I mean, obviously, consumers have the, the, the ombudsman to go off if their claim is under a certain value, and there are also various opportunities to consider what's known as ADR, which is alternative dispute resolution. In the context we're talking about, that's usually mediation. The parties are usually legally represented by that stage. And the protocol envisages a letter of claim, the provision of appropriate information, and three months to investigate and substantively respond. If the response is a denial of fault liability, then it is the claimants then free to go off and issue their claim for quite often it can go on for the protocol period can go on for at least six months because when we're talking about defect claims and you're right it it could it could have been the product of a building insurance claim to start with and builders insurers as you know will investigate they may monitor and once they've discovered what the cause is they may seek to suggest that the insurance is not available on the grounds it's a pre-existing condition and that's usually where it sort of cements that the claimant's resolved to go after the surveyor who failed to spot the pre-existing defect. So it can take between six and 12 months to go through that protocol process, particularly if you're needing expert evidence. And all the time, the homeowner, the client, consumer, they've got to live in that property usually. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like they just reach boiling point, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, no. And, it's, and it's, I think sometimes we... You know, we forget that. Yes, they're un- angry and unhappy, but they've got to, um, they're, they're in it. And mm-hmm. They can't escape it. And that, that must mentally be really challenging. Yeah. No, I'm sure it's, unfortunately, I've never been in that position. But I have sat in mediations before on consumer claims where it is very clear to me that the, the, the customer has had to live with an issue for a length period of time and it has 
it's easy to say, but you know, they've lost the rationale has gone slightly out of the window. And in a way, one can understand it. But there's ways there's way one can deal with that. Um, especially in a, if you've got a good mediator, the mediator will talk independently to the parties. And the magic that quite often they do is not seen by us all because it's, it's with the other side in the context we're talking about. Uh, and it's just bringing sort of a sense check, a degree of objectivity to it. But no, I, I can understand if, if one's living in a house that's in a, in a in a dreadful state, it's got damp or it's moving, it's not a happy place to be. But there's no magic wand to solve it overnight, mm. I don't think. And what's your experience of surveyors who go through this? You know, a lot of the surveyors that I meet, you know, they're, they're terrified of getting a claim, as I said at the start, or they're, you know, very sort of jaded by the industry and their experience of it. But for cases that then go far, for me, my experience in dealing with with all different things that I did in my career was it taught me a lot about customer experience um, mm-hmm. and, and what happens there, but also even more importantly, employee experience and that a surveyor never goes out to do a bad job. They go out to mm-hmm. do their best work, but somewhere along the line, it goes wrong and you know they they ultimately pay the price now i always take the view that you look at the job as a whole as i said before you know sometimes it's you know there were t and c's that weren't done or weren't right or there's somebody said something to somebody at some point or didn't return a call whatever it's not always just about the you know the actual defects but that's what surveyors always hone in on you know i missed something or i didn't know enough about this that and the other What's your experience of, I mean, do you have much contact with the surveyor when a case is going through like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all very well for me to sit here and say surveyors should get to know their client, understand their requirements, explain precisely what they can and can't do within the level of service being provided. The same applies to me when it's not I'm not just speaking to the insurance company, the insurance broker and the CEO or managing partner of the surveying practice. Um, it's, it's important that the surveyor that undertook the work originally is involved in the process. Their evidence is, is crucial. One can form a view. In some, I know you shouldn't form a view, but I often, if the file of papers that you get is awful uh, and there's no notes, there's very little record, you're already thinking to yourself, what's the point of speaking to this individual? Uh, because It's interesting. They, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is... When you're dealing with a complaint or a claim, there is nothing better than just getting a full file, notes you can read, photos that are labelled mm. <laughs> so that you can... At but least it's, it's just so much more important than that. It's not just ease for me. Mm. It's when if one ever gets to court um, and the judge is having to determine something on the basis of oral witness evidence, judges nine times out of ten will prefer the consumer's account and recollection. This is assuming it's not laughable and disingenuous and clearly wrong, than they will the surveyor or indeed any other professional. And, and the logic behind that is that it's it's the consumer's one transaction. So their recollection is likely to be better than the professional who's dealing with many transactions over the course of and, and you know, as we've said before, you know, sometimes with the statute of limitations, it can be six years before the claim is even going properly. So it could be another two or three years before you're at trial. So courts always tend to do that. But also, it paints a picture. If a judge sees a, a file that, that is in an absolutely superb condition, 
in terms of what's been retained, the records that have been captured. And I'm not just talking about photographs, which are crucial, or videos, but, you know, even all the field sheets or whatever one calls now on tablets, but also, you know, reasoned methodology if evaluation is being provided, not just for free comps support this, and I won't say anything mm. about it because I don't have to, but, you know, a method um, when it comes to potential issues, because I mean, few houses are defect-free, and quite often one of the killers is, well, there was a you know, two or three or four indicators that were visible that had one stood back and thought, well, could these three or four be linked in any way? It may have led a good old trail of suspicion. It may have led to a conclusion that mm, it could be this, and therefore perhaps some further thought investigation is required just to get, get to the bottom. So it helps in so many ways, an absolutely transparent and clear retained record of thought process and, and exercise of professional judgment, not only just do evaluation, but also do with why a potential defect is not a problem that needs further investigation. Yeah, you're right. It's been able to do that on one job, but really we don't do it consistently. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think for surveyors at particularly small firms, they need to get really good at managing their time, their processes, almost sort of making sure that jobs are closed off properly, you know, mm-hmm. and looking at the whole because it's consistency and routine that Mm -hmm. can help but also you don't want to get too complacent either you know I know what I'm doing and I'll finish that tomorrow and then you forget to upload the photos and then they disappear and if you're working in an area when I used to work in in in, um in South London in Croydon and there were parts of it that every street looked the bloody same (laughs) you know if I didn't keep Mm -hmm. on top of you know where I'd been I couldn't you know they all sort Mm -hmm. of blur into one and so get that routine that consistency everything from prep before you go out to a property the routine and that you take whether you start in the roof or outside however it is but right the way through to the very end is so key and doing that on a on a regular basis and then also things like auditing you know a lot of the big firms Mm -hmm. do a lot of auditing to make sure and they have to for their lender panel client arrangements but auditing to make sure that there is that consistency and there is that support but that's things that small firms can do as well sort of peer-to-peer reviews and and buddy up with people you mentioned a video and technology you know has moved on a lot and I see on the surveyor hub particularly you know a lot of surveyors you know are really geeky and those listening know exactly what I mean talking about drones and the right kind of camera and the latest flashy gizmo for things you know how how much does that make a difference or not because if you've got a high-tech camera on a pole seeing things that you might not have seen before does that help does it not because we always often talk about you know what would an is an average or reasonable surveyor doing this job would Mm. do you know but not everybody has a drone and got a drone license not everybody is doing you know cameras on selfie sticks you know, mm. how much is that making a difference well, the, the, the levels of service with the new home service standard are quite clear i mean it's a welcome thing and uh, we could talk about the devil in the detail because it was this uh, but it, it's a good place to start so you know, as a lawyer you don't go beyond the scope of what you're expected and you certainly don't do it for nothing so it really you know it, people should well, what do, what 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 are these service levels oblige you to do? If one wants to go an extra mile, fine, but for nothing, and at the same time, for potentially opening themselves up to additional liability, not a good idea. So it needs it needs to be thought through. I mean, as you all know, 
none of the service levels that are currently in place that came in effect, where are we now, the 14th, 14 days ago after the transition, none of them envisage drones. And so, you know, if one wants to use it, I would have thought that's an additional service. But, you know, what I tend to see, because unless you're talking about a surveyor specialising in routes, which there are, and therefore they're not working necessarily, the new levels are irrelevant to them because they're just a, a niche outfit. That's very different and their terms and conditions will be aligned to what they're doing. But it's all very well having fancy gizmos. But if you're not utilising the information it's providing properly, it's potential banana skin. And if you're not getting the capturing information you want, it's also banana skin. It's all well good having a drone, but they're not looking at the footage in any great depth. I did have a claim where someone had used a rotating camera in each room, which I thought was a jolly good idea because quite often you get a couple of pictures preserved for each room in the house. But obviously furniture, particularly when we're talking about moving, furniture is never the same. And so whilst we can say, well, we're fairly confident that particular issue was concealed by something that couldn't move, uh, if we haven't got an actual picture proving that, it's a tricky one. So the data that these cameras, I don't know what they call them. Forgive like me, 360 cameras. Yeah, yeah it was great. It was, I, what I'd seen being preserved was great, but it, it actually hindered because it proved we'd missed something that we was capable of being seen. And it was the surveyor I was dealing with conceded that they hadn't looked at the footage. Yeah. So it's a risk if, if you're going to do that and preserve the information without having looked at it. And I, I appreciate time. It's like everything with risk management. I, I spent 20 years talking to people about risk management and usually people, their eyes glaze and they start yawning and saying, well, that's just going to slow me down. And this is boring. And I just don't have time for this. Uh, but it was, it was the, I think, the chairman of Airmic once said, you know, why, do, why does a car have brakes? Uh, and the answer was to go faster. Uh, and that, it's a fair point, is that. So I, I think that one has to, back to where we started, what are you doing? What, what service are you providing? To what, stick to your core competency. I specialise in old buildings. I specialise in this or that. Or the other. Whatever you're doing, tailor your service and your fees, and most importantly, all your terms and conditions, to what you're doing. I recently, I, I did a lot of T&C work recently with a range of clients, and it was on the follow-on from the external war system. I'll use the word debacle, <laughs> not accusing anybody of fault, but it's yeah. just been a, a, yeah. a staggering problem for two or three years now. Mm. Uh, and you know, every time Rick's do something or try and do something, the goalposts shift through no fault of their own. And then you know, there was the fire service exclusions with the RICS minimum terms. And then we've got the most latest guide. So there's all these things flying around. And it's just, uh, and then we've got the home service standards. So a lot of work on T's and C's to get them into the 21st century for what one is doing. Because whilst I know RICS provide standard guidance on T's and C's, that's really sort of headlines around what I would call the, the you know, data protection and this, that fairly basic stuff but actually scoping out what you're doing is the most and what you're accepting absolutely absolutely and it is crucial yeah and one of the things i've been asked for and when i worked at we had blue box we got asked for a lot was you know some template tncs and i see the benefit of that to a point to get you started 
But every business is different. Every surveyor is different. Every service that you offer is different. And surveyors need to really understand what they're doing, consequences of it, but also approach TNCs in a positive way. You know, they're there to help. They're almost like a marketing tool. They're there to help the consumer understand what they're going to get rather than a very defensive, no, we won't do this, we won't do that. And I have some other podcasts coming out on that during the course of this, this season that I'll put a link to in the show notes. But there's a lot that, that can be done. And I do see surveyors, you know, see in the, in the hub particularly, you know, has anybody got a copy of terms I can borrow or I can use? And for me, that's a big red flag. Not so much because you're taking someone else's terms, but you're not understanding your own business and how it operates and what happens and who does what and seeing it just as a, a quick fix or it's a hassle, you know, which is one mm. of those things we have to do. We have to have terms rather than seeing it as a, a force for good because all of these things that you create in your business, your TNCs, your policies, all the things that you need, they're assets in your business add value to the business, whether you're going to sell it in the future or not, even if you're a one-man band, you know, it all creates an asset. And so why skimp and put yourself at risk? I'd like to ask you about defects because surveyors do love good, juicy defect stories. And what we don't always hear is some of the trends, what's coming out. You know, there's, as far as I'm aware, there's not one source of the truth of what surveyors are always getting wrong. From my experience and people that I've spoken to, it seems to be the same things and has been for the last 15, 20 years, which is dampness, roofs mm. and chimneys and structural movement. Not that often, but usually it's up there because it's really expensive. Is that how you, you see it? Are there any new things that people should be aware of? It's difficult to answer that question. We tend to see the bigger ones where there's a major structural defect, where there is a significant impact in terms of value. What we also see is an absolute boatload of Japanese not weight claims. Now, I know there's bricks have just recently put out a draft guidance for consultation. But, you know, we've got lots of, unfortunately, my profession generates what I would call some claimant farming businesses. They chase around on the PPI, on endowments. They're currently busy on interest-earning mortgages, and they're doing a lot in the data protection area, which is not cyber, but is where inadvertent and personal detail is sent to the wrong person or leaked by accident. And they're a menace, and they're also live and kicking in the world of Japanese knotweed. So I would urge surveyors to be alive to what that looks like. And Japanese knotweed is not the only invasive species out there. Mm. But, you know, it depends on what level of survey you're doing as to how, whether you are conducting a cursory or a thorough inspection of the, the garden. So those just, they're, they're a problem because there are experts out there who will tell you that it knocks value by 3% even once you've had an insurance-backed treatment plan implemented. Um, so that's messy. Aside from that, chimneys do do cause problems. It's more structure related. When you're dealing with much older properties, certainly those that timber framed, you see lots of claims coming in around the quality of the timber and the use in the last probably 80 years of cement as a form of render when it should be a lime-based mortar. And there are quite a few heritage-type surveyors out there 
who will uh, provide expert reports saying that it needs to be put back into its original condition. And when we're talking about properties 300 years old, as you can imagine, that's very expensive. Uh, And we also see problems which I would call environment-linked. And that is, what does the site, what's the topography of the site? And risks prevented from, we're seeing more extreme weather these days. So we're seeing more claims where there's been movement of the ground that's caused by groundwater or if it's built on the hillside, problems with retaining walls, which are not necessarily part of the building, but do impact on it. Um, So environmental issues are sort of becoming more prevalent. We've even had a claim about pollution. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. So... So that makes it difficult because what point does a surveyor draw the line, you know? Well, there was a a case a few years ago involving... It was, in fact, more of a concern to agents, but it was... When you look at one of the appendices to the Home Survey standards, there's a piece about local environmental issues and infrastructure. And, you know, is there a motorway going to be built within half a mile of this? Is there an industrial slate plan? Where, where does one draw the line? Well, hang on, I'm looking at property and I'm looking at its defined boundary. What do you want me to, whether there's a nightclub can be built half a mile away? And then you get surveyors saying, well, there's lots of um, public access information available on websites that we can have a look at. But, you know, again, it's a risk and reward. How far does one go in looking? But the, the case in point was, it was a straight misrepresentation case. The vendors denied that they knew of any plans for any major redevelopment or building work within a couple of miles of the property, and they did know. And that was what it was about. But the agent was getting twitchy because they were dragged into it. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's a live issue when you look at environmental issues, because quite clearly... The way the home service standards are drawn, there's an expectation that major things in the vicinity, with the requirement for a surveyor to have local knowledge, are potentially fair game in the report. So again, you're back to T's and C's. Let's let's restrict. Yeah, what we're going to and do. I guess I guess also it comes back to being really clear on the service that you're offering. Because mm-hmm. yeah. if you're if you're offering a service that will help people buy their property, then you want to be alive to all of those issues around. Whereas if you're being very specific, I am only looking at the condition of the property within this boundary at this date and time. Do you know I mean you can start to draw the line, mm-hmm. but it's been really clear. But you know, when you even with your um your Japanese knotweed ambulance chasers again it comes back to having an open dialogue with your client and just because you've done the job and you know sent the report off it never ends there and keeping in touch with them and making sure that you're presenting yourself as open and and, di- and having that dialogue and approachable means that if they do discover Japanese knotweed that they come to you first rather than to go down one of these get rich quick claim yeah. solutions mm-hmm. and it means you can you know you, you've still got the same problem but it means you've got a much better relationship you've got a much better chance of success and and less bullying tactics i guess with letters and different things being thrown at you mm-hmm. so it comes back to that you know being a surveyor for life to a family or, or to a client and not see it as so transactional you know that's no the, no you're right thing. but it, it, you said earlier it sets the scene all the work i've done on t's and c's recently i've been refreshed to find that people do not want a template they want to incorporate sound protections and scope of duty stuff in their language, in their branding, that matches their ethos as a business. And that the exercise is really useful 
it's refreshing from that perspective because they've got ownership in it. But when you go through it to detail, it enables people to then recalibrate, well, this is what I'm expected to do. This is what I'm not going to do. This is, I can cost it a bit better and I can be a bit more fulsome with my client because they never read terms and conditions. And the truth is that very rarely do people. Yeah, yeah, you see, see though, I think think that's bad because we know that they don't read it. And if we know that they don't read it, then we should be going over and above to make sure that they understand. Correct. And I do wonder, is that whole sort of Herod's Clause piece, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. And I do wonder if we're going to get to a point where we need to do things like key facts, like you get in a mortgage, you know, um, you know that they use. But then what do you know, insurance brokers do? Your key facts statement. Mm. But, you know, there's bound to be something left there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult. It really is difficult. I mean, you can have it in your, in your, terms and conditions but it's the language is useful and you know some of the best stuff i've seen is is where the critical stuff is bullet pointed on the front page and then you know further behind there's the detail which doesn't it just further defines it doesn't drastically change yeah um and the the other problem we still keep walking into is asbestos it's still a major problem and i know that many surveyors will be told that if it's not if it's not in fraying and it's not a particular type one needn't worry about it, but quite often these days it's masked and hidden, and it's only if you start lif- lifting insulation in the loft, or if you start having a proper nosy in an old cupboard in the boiler room, do you see it? But it's still a banana skin. And this all comes back to you know, once you've done your inspection, you're doing your job, you've done your research, it's making sure you give yourself enough time for reflective thought to digest everything that you've seen because also you know it's quite a sensory job when you walk in I've had surveyors tell me they can diagnose dampness with the smell of their nose and maybe they can but you walk in and you get a sense and a feel for a property and whether it's sort of been maintained or not and what the likelihood is and all your training and everything that you know in that moment gives you an idea of of what needs to be done and when you've written the report you know having that reflective time to digest when you've been traveling you know, traffic is hectic, you know, rush jobs, this, that, and the other. It just makes a, a massive difference. And so it's making sure that you allow yourself time to do that, but equally that you charge fees that cover that. There's too many surveyors that I see that just charge far too low. But that's a whole other kind of worms to talk about. Yeah. But Duncan, it's been really good to talk to you today. Thank you ever so much. I know a lot of surveyors listening will find that really useful. Good. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website lovesurveying.com. And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.